This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Uh, We are entering my favorite season, Emmy season, and my guest today is up for an Emmy. She is the only female director nominated for directing in the drama category. Her name is Kari Skogland. She has directed episodes of Boardwalk Empire and The Americans and The Walking Dead, House of Cards, but she's up for an Emmy this year for directing Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This show stars a lot of talented actors like Elizabeth Moss, Samira Wiley, Joseph Fiennes, and Dowd. And all of those actors are up for Emmys themselves this year, too. So The Handmaid's Tale is adapted for TV from the Margaret Atwood novel, the classic by the same name. Uh, it was adapted by writer and showrunner Bruce Miller. It's set in this America where infertility has plagued Everyone but a handful of women who are forced into sexual slavery uh, by a ruling class of religious extremists. I know it's heavy. Uh, Kari and I talk about the show and what it's like to work on something that is so challenging and dark. And we talk about female directors in Hollywood, why it is still so hard for them. Uh, And this is a thing that Kari has been writing about and talking about for decades. All right. With that, let's get into it. Me and director Kari Skoglund. She was in New York. I was in L.A. Enjoy. Congratulations on your nomination. That's pretty awesome, huh? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it has been a, a wonderful ride and a real surprise. What it's so like, I know for the Oscars, when a movie or an actor is about to be up for nomination, and once they have it, they're like on the circuit, and they are whining and dining and glad-handing for months. How intense is the circuit for the Emmy? Well, it's quite similar, actually. And now yeah. with uh, the, well, basically the television has is no longer TV as we ever knew it. Yeah. People are watching television as if it's in the same kind of sphere, I suppose, as what features used to be. Mm. Um, I think also because there's so much sort of social commentary allowed in television and less so oddly in features these days. I mean, it's always there, but it's it's so independent. Yeah. Uh, so you're on the circuit. You're also talking a lot about what that is. Hmm. You know, so it's been it's been a real joy that way to be part of a, com- a continuing conversation. Obviously, you make a piece of entertainment and that has its... Um, has its bearing, but then when you get to continue the conversation from a very personal place, uh, I found it very rewarding. Yeah. You know, it's, there was a moment, and it's probably still a moment, in which this show, The Handmaid's Tale, has become a part of the imagery of the so-called resistance to Donald Trump. There were women at resistance marches wearing the outfits from The Handmaid's Tale. Are you okay with that? How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I'm only one of the cogs in the wheel in terms yeah, of bringing it to life. What a pretty big cog. Who's up thank for you. an Emmy? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I, uh, I, wouldn't, I would like to say that 
nobody involved is agenda-oriented. So I don't know that there's been specificity to say, all right, we'll take on this argument. And by the way, everything that happened in the book, according to Margaret, which I know from research, has happened in the world. So mm. nothing, nothing was made up. She obviously put it into a, um, a narrative that was uh, fiction, but it, it's all based on absolute truth. So I think we are very aware in every step of what we are portraying, and I feel very good about that. Yeah. You, I want to talk about the nuts and bolts of directing this show in a minute, but I do have to say a pressing question that I have for you. You're Canadian. Yeah. Uh, which and, is American. Great. and American. And American. And both. Yeah. Yes. But, like, do you approach seeing how this show fits into the American cultural landscape right now, looking at some of the themes and plot lines in your show, do you approach them differently than some of your not-Canadian counterparts? Like, this is a show in which people are fleeing American tyranny by going to Canada. Do you see all of that differently I, as a yeah. Canadian? Well, I have to say... Um, uh, the, doing the finale where, um, you know, Samira escaped to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had quite a um, a fun time with that because, you know, in the envelope, <laughs> she was getting, you know, her her um, health card and her, you know, her new passport. And she was being embraced as a as a immigrant. Oh, and yeah. what else did she get? She got, you know, a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars for housing and clothes and, you know, all these gifts that Canada does. Do they does. do that up there? They do. They do. Yeah. Did they I do. Know that. Okay. And what was funny was, of course, right at that time was the beginning of the whole immigration question mm. where in the U.S. they were saying, you know, no to, you know, hardlining the whole immigration idea. And so it was, you know, this eye-popping kind of difference. Uh, And also being Canadian, of course, growing up in Canada, I read the, you know, I studied Margaret Atwood uh, amongst the other feminist authors of the time. And uh, so there was a wonderful point of pride that this was being brought to life. Hmm. And of course, uh, a wonderful irony that it was being brought to life by Americans and not Canadians. So <laughs> it had to be said. <laughs> when did you know that you wanted to direct? <laughs> I was 12 years old and I went to see Ryan's daughter. Really? Yeah. What about Ryan's daughter made you know? You know, I, I, I can't tell you. I think it was the cinema, the fact that this movie took me to a story that um, I hadn't, the importance of a story that I hadn't quite ever, you know, realized about war, Mm. and it was so engaging, and it Mm. was this Romeo and Juliet love story at the same time as this cautionary tale and and tragedy, and set in the, you know, Ireland, which is nothing but beautiful, and um, (laughs) these, you know, epic performances, and I just said, I want to do that, and I I just want to make that, those... You know, at 12. So, but of course, I didn't come from a family that was on the inside of entertainment. So, of course. What kind of family did you come from? Well, my mother was a teacher and my father was in broadcast, uh, ran a series of um, radio stations in. uh, Really? Yeah, in Canada. So, I actually. What kind of radio? Sorry, I have to stop and geek out on this for a second. Oh, well, it was (laughs) standard broadcasting. So, CKFM, CFRB. It was. was, News radio. One station was news radio. Another one was more pop music, popular music. Okay. So I then folded into you know that that world, mm-hmm. 
And uh, I actually even had my own show at one point um, called Good News Reporting, which was uh, so I was I, I was you know you had a radio casting for I did I had a radio show Good News. Okay, what was the show about? We're gonna. Well, I was, I was a, a teenager. I was a, a teenager um, in my last year of high school, oh, and uh, sold a show to. Um, uh, CBC, which is like the BBC or, oh, or yeah, like yeah. NPR. But yeah. you sold the show your senior year of yeah, high school yeah. to Canada's NPR. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it would be good news stories. So we would I like that. go around, we would, you know, interview the people. I don't know. I can't even remember the stories now, but the, it'd be like, you know, um, the person who trains um, seeing eye dogs and uh-huh. what that, you know, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so it was all feel good stuff, but uh, I really enjoyed it. But at twelve, you're like, I want to direct. Was the direct path to and get produce there. and write? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to do it all. It was like okay. it was just I want to do it all. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I did. You know, by age 25, I owned my first company, which was uh, post production. So I okay. came in through editing, and um, started in commercials and music videos, uh, which helped my, uh, I guess, design my visual dialogue. Uh, but also um, learn the importance of the second, of the 10 seconds, you know, how much you can, Mm. how much story you can tell. Mm. Uh, So that was a great area to learn. And then I started writing and um, wrote my first feature um, with Paul Rudd starred in. Um, Really? Which uh, one was that? Well, actually, I directed that one. Pardon me. I didn't write that one. Uh, It was called Size of Watermelons. Okay. (laughs) And it was this kind of um, I love you, man, kind of storyline yeah, 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 and yeah. we had a we had a blast I think we shot it in 10 days in Venice Beach um, wow. the first film I wrote was called Stone Angel which was actually a movie a book a Margaret Lawrence book mm-hmm. um, another movie I wrote was called 50 Dead Men Walking with hmm. um, Ben Kingsley Jim Sturgis and I was very proud of that film we all were who worked on it because it was yeah. about a time in history that I knew very little about, which was the the troubles in Ireland and, uh, you know, saving lives and ratting out your neighbor, you know, what that conundrum was. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always loved to dig into, you know, these tough stories to tell. So Handmade, when it came along, was um, absolutely my sweet spot. (laughs) Yeah. So you've directed how many episodes? What, three or four? Well, uh, four this year and one last year. Okay. So this is my forever question. I will watch a season of a show, and it will have a through line and a certain continuity, and the episodes look like they all belong together. Then I'll look at the credits and realize every episode was directed by somebody else. How do you guys do that? (laughs) Like, how do you (laughs) go into an episode and say, I'm directing this episode, I'm going to make it my own, but it also needs to be part of this larger unit and make sense in the midst of that larger forest well i think it first of all it's show dependent um Mm. on how much uh license you're given to bring your unique um visual style to the show how much were you given on handmade you are given complete freedom you know uh, really unlike some shows where you're really expected just to fold in and kind of you know deliver the script that's it and put the camera you know where we normally put the camera and uh, so on. This show um, really is much more like making a feature. Okay. And uh, and uses kind of that feature model where the director is truly in charge on the floor. And we, uh, Bruce renders a very, uh, I would say, spare script. Uh, both, you know, because imagine all those scenes where 
there's three words. <laughs> his, yeah. his point of pride is to take a paragraph and turn it into a word. So there's a lot of room for the actors to perform and for the camera and for the atmosphere and the mood to help create the tension and the drama. Yeah. Because you can imagine all the actors have... Uh, this is tremendously difficult material yeah, to you perform. don't say. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the for them to be gracious about an incoming director um, and, uh, you know, the path of discovery with anybody, it takes a little bit to get to know each other and to get to trust each other and, um, and to get inside each other's heads. Mm, yeah. Do you drop little Easter eggs into your episodes so that people can see them and kind of be like, oh, that's a Kari episode? I don't. I don't actually. But I think I, I probably have a fairly signature style. I tend to to have a certain aesthetic, although I try to sh- I try to shake that up. Honestly, I try to. Um, I think as I evolve and I, as I I look at an episode um, uh, or a feature that I'm working on, whatever, and I think, okay, what is this scene really about, and what can I really get away with in terms of um, uh, drilling into that, mm. and so. Um, I started as an editor, and so right now one of the things I'm doing is looking for ways not to have edits, for example. So you'll see my scenes unfold, and I try to eliminate uh, what I call ping-pong editing. and um, which, you know, which is? Just, well, you know, close-up, 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 back and forth, you know, huh. uh, two people sitting at a table, ping-pong, back and forth. And so I try and find ways to block it and to keep people moving. I tend to use a lot of movement uh, in both camera and characters, and I also tend to give characters a lot to physically do Mm -hmm. um so i I never mean to unsettle someone but i always find if they if they're having to cope with something that's physical it can often bring something that much more alive all right time for a break when we come back in a show of dark and disturbing scenes kari describes the most intense scene she and the cast had to shoot all right brb Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobito Garcia, the hosts of What's Good. We're kicking off a new season with legendary singer-songwriter Erica Badu. That's why they call me Fat Belly Bella, because they never know when I'm going to be impregnated. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg. This week on Ask Me Another, we've got comedian, rapper, and one-eighth of Ocean's 8, Aquafina. Plus, drag race champ Sasha Velour. So join me for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. When you were first approached to do anything with the show, like, did you, was there any moment of pause where you said, gosh, this is freaking dark? No, 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 mm. no. No, I, I immediately knew I was in. I, I can say, you know, in episode eight, mm-hmm. uh, where. Joe has to spank his wife. We all mm. were, I mean, the, the, it was a very quiet day on set. We were all very reverent of 
what it mm. was we were displaying and what we were portraying. Is that one of those scenes where you're just like, shoot it once and be done? I can't, like, we can't do, like, no, we can't belabor this. No, no, we shot many, many takes oh. and we, um, we rehearsed it. We, we knew what it was we were, uh, what we were trying to say here, you know, as he was destroying the relationship. He was humiliating her to destroy yeah. a relationship that was threatening his position. Um, and we knew exactly what that uh, was in what the intention of the scene yeah. was, and therefore how important it was to get it right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, but, but it was just a very quiet. I have to say, a very yeah. quiet time on set because we all felt the. It's Im- tough. It's tough. It was just hard. So it's it's moments like that. I think on any set, but in particular this one, where uh, the the respect of the mm. writers and mm. uh, the, uh, the whole of everybody involved in the show the team yeah it, you just all realize we're doing something special and let's not upset the apple cart you know <laughs> the show is more yeah. important than anything else yeah. special but hard i mean we actually yeah. asked some of our list we asked all of our listeners to send us questions they might have for you, ah. you know, and fans of the show wrote in and one of the things that we saw a lot in the themes of the questions was how do you as a person Working on a show that is often so dark, how do you, like, take care of yourself? I mean, it must be emotionally draining and taxing. Like, is it harder just doing this work than other stuff you've done before? That That is a really good question. And I have to say, I think it is. Because, oh. you know, you you have to live there. Now, we what all have... What do you have, mean by that? Well, you in your head, you know, I have to, I have to take it on and imagine... I have to put myself into the scene Mm. and kind of be all I have to take on and be all the characters right I have to kind of live there what's the book where the guy holds all the emotion for the whole community the giver right right but but it it is a little like that because you have to go in there and I have to kind of embody the space from all the different perspectives that must hurt that must hurt yes it's hard that's why I choose not to do certain kinds of of shows or, or movies because it's just a place that I don't want to live for, you know, because you have to. Um, I don't know. If, for example, if you have to do a wound, I have to plan the wound. I have to help the, the, um, you know, figure out how we're going to make the wound. Uh, if I have uh. to make someone cry, I had to. Poor Yvonne had to cry for, you know, probably three hours. Uh. The poor woman was destroyed. You know, she and she. It was a beautiful, heartbreaking scene. But I feel like the taskmaster. Okay, do it again. Here we go, <laughs> right? Because we have to do oh. it multiple times. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to make them go again. Yeah. So having said that, what I do, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Samira, um, in her heart-wrenching moment where she sees the the uh, her lover, her dead lover for the first time mm-hmm. uh, in episode seven of season mm-hmm. two. So what I do is, first of all, I try to make a very safe set. And that means... Um, when we have a particularly difficult performance, it's about being quiet. It's about being reverent, and uh, you know you don't joke around. You make the, really? the the space, yeah. Because a set can be an awful lot like a cocktail party for a lot of the time. You know, people talk, yeah. and they're you know it's many jobs that come together. So it's important that um, when we have a very particularly difficult scene coming up, part of it is, for example, with Samira, I did the close-up first. And I also made sure that she saw nothing of that book until it was time to look through it. So she is looking 
we are capturing as she's looking through the book and seeing, you know, we, we recreated the dead bodies um, and we recreated, well, the dead body of her lover who's in there. Uh, and I made sure she didn't see that so that the first time she looked at it was the first time um, she saw it. And we we captured that moment. So it helped her just be in the moment and not have to force hmm. anything but truth. What is your routine once you leave set after a hard day? Your your self-care regimen? Is it an immediate glass of whiskey or something? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but probably should be. Uh, no. <laughs> um, uh, you know what? I go home and hug my kids or I talk to my kids. And that, uh, I think, kids? has really... I've got a 15-year-old and a 20-year-old. Okay. And uh, I think that's been a big part of uh, grounding me and my husband. Um, I talk to them, you know, because... They haven't experienced what I've experienced. So if I bring my stress home, they, they call me on it, and mm. um, all of them do. And so um, I would say, uh, you know, hearing about their day and um, taking me out of my day, mm. uh, which I think at the time is so important, you know, and mm-hmm. you realize, that's ah, not so important. Listen to what happened to them. So that, I think, is really my my true regimen is that connecting with them. And sometimes yeah. if I'm traveling because I... I do an awful lot of traveling. So even if it's an emoji, even if it's a, <laughs> hey, how's it going, hon? You know, um, I connect with them. And I, one of the things that I think I've, I've been very careful to do is uh, not separate them, actually, from what I do. So they've seen <laughs> me um, distressing over something maybe I felt I didn't get right and um, all the stuff that just goes into the creative process. I've embraced that and let them see it so that, I think I hope as women they will grow up to understand that that's just part of living you know particularly if they're going to choose a creative field but I think it's true of all fields and and uh, particularly women who uh, particularly anybody male or female who is taking on the you know the challenging roles yeah. of leadership of because mm-hmm. I lead a, a group of I lead a, you know a hundred people every day into something <laughs> yeah. doing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, speaking of leading and your role as a director on such a big show, you've written and talked at length before about the odds uh, for female directors. They're still slim. It's still hard. Do you think it's better now than it was when you started? The data seems to suggest actually no. Well, you know, it was funny. My mother um, recently was uh, going through some of her, the. Apparently, she's been keeping a you know a shoebox full of clippings on me. And um, a good mom. <laughs> yeah, a good mom, huh? And so she she uh, brought it over and said, uh, you know, maybe you would like this. Uh, you know, so I was the kids. Funny enough, were going through some of these clippings, and I can tell you, at age twenty nine, the same. I was telling the same story. Uh, hmm. I was being interviewed by you know newspapers and so on. And it was the same story. How are you, you know, uh, how are you being a woman and doing this? And how is, and then, of course, having family, that was considered impossible. I was just told it's impossible. You will not be able to have a family and direct. Mm. And um, so I decided, which is why I decided to embrace just making it all normal, kind of making it our family business. Yeah. My husband is an editor, and so... Oh, I didn't actually, know that. Yeah, he's an editor, and so he, um, in fact, he was the first person who hired me <laughs> as, a, as an assistant editor. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so that's how I came up through the editing process. Yeah. So, um, and then we fell in love, and and the rest was history between us. <laughs> but um, uh, so 
I think, uh, sadly, the narrative hasn't really changed, and um, and the numbers haven't really changed. And that's not about griping about it. It's just a, a kind of saying, uh, whoa, how is it that it hasn't changed? Uh, I think what I'd love to believe, um, so I, I sort of cynically say <laughs> I've been through the Me Too movement a few times, <laughs> uh, you know, but um, I'd like to think that the optics of it now are a little bit more important and that um, the people, if, if we're sitting in a room and somebody's saying, okay, we're going to have to write a check to pay that person off because there's been a charge, a bad thing. Are we being responsible as human beings to pay to, to write that check? Mm. Similarly, in a boardroom, mm. are they being responsible by looking at the lineup of people that they're working with and saying, gosh, it's off kilter to the general population and to the diversity question. Should we be paying attention? And I feel like for the first time, that conversation is a lot more open. Yeah. You, in one of the essays you wrote about representation and gender in Hollywood and and fields like directing, you talked about your younger self and how you didn't see the barriers and just kind of worked around them without knowing they were there. And there's a line that really stuck with me. You said, ignorance allowed me to believe and invest in myself as if my ambitions as a filmmaker had no limits. Then you go on to write that you sacrificed wages and time and more to accomplish your goals, kind of not even knowing the glass ceilings that might exist. Looking back on that, you know, ignorant, younger version of you, are you proud of her or do you feel sorry for her? <laughs> How do you look back on that younger you? Well, of course, uh, no regrets for sure. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it was at the time particularly important that I did not acknowledge that there were barriers because it, the, the hmm. second you acknowledge them, um, you start to see them, right? And so if you see them, you you kind of play into them a little bit and you can use that as an excuse. So I think I somehow just, you know, put the uh put the head down and the horns on and just tried to break through. I, I the older self would say to the younger self though, okay, now you understand why certain things didn't happen. Hmm. You know, it, just it, just understand what you didn't know, you you didn't know. And so it wasn't your fault. You know that you, you I, I think a female tends not to be able to fail up, hmm. for example. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's a gender bias. I think men often fail up and, and women generally don't. So um, if you've made a mistake, you wear it. And it's really hard to dig yourself out from under that mistake. Yeah. You know, having said that, um, you just do it. And I keep what I mentor a lot of women and I um, uh, not only on set, uh, but um, I have several people who, you know, call me. And I have people that I call, both male and female. And I can say um, I've had as much support from men as I have from women to, you know, get past some of these barriers that that mm. are gender specific, yeah. you know. Mm. And I recently spoke with um, a, a female director who said she had chosen not to have children. Mm. And she, uh, you know, was questioning it. Uh, as a woman later in life. And um, I thought, I felt for her because I thought, you know, she she bought in. 
And I guess it's up to you to design your life the way you you want to design it. And so hopefully uh, the message is it certainly can be done. Um, There is a whole boatload of luck involved Mm. and then a whole boatload of hard work. You know, you asked me what I do when I go home to decompress. Well, I also do my shot list for the next day and get a little bit buried in that. Mm -hmm. I rework, you know, I look at dailies. I I spend probably two hours working to make sure that the next day is informed. Because you you can't do an entire plan for, you know, 30 days of shooting that is going to remain sound. So each day I tweak it which is a good hour to an hour and a half of work, might requ- might require phone calls, mm. might require, you know, uh, rearranging plans because something didn't work. Yeah. So there's, uh, I would say, the other part to, you know, I, and I don't think male or female, any director um, and or person who's succeeded at anything would say that there's not, there's an awful lot of hard work that goes on yeah. alongside that. Yeah. I want to ask also about a thing that you've written about before in terms of how to change the industry when it comes to gender parity or the lack thereof. You've talked about government-sponsored film agencies in other countries that set targets for women in filmmaking, quotas, you could call them. Do you think those programs work in those countries? Uh, and do you think that anything like that could happen here? Because, I mean, it, I don't think that there is a government entity that could do the same kind of thing that it would no, exactly. do in other countries. So, so where should we look? I guess we should look to the studios. Now, if they if they actually openly said, and particularly um, the studios who make all the superhero movies. The most popular film award movies. <laughs> the, yeah, the most popular film award movies. If they said, because they all have many of them, they they are the, the, the big, you know, producers. If they said, we will have... Fifty percent of our movies made by women mm-hmm. tomorrow, mm-hmm. whether there's a male lead or female lead, doesn't matter. Yeah. That would, I think, probably signal the same thing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Do you think they would ever do that? You're in the. Industry. I hope. That's but do you what, think they would? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm going to uh, leave that one. Uh, I okay. guess that's an open challenge. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, are you hopeful about things changing as a woman that's been in this oh, yes, now for a bit? Oh yes, absolutely. We can. We all live in hope. Of course, that's the business. We are in the business of hope. So, so we do live in hope. And I, I do feel. I honestly feel we are changing the course of things now. Yeah. I, I really believe that that is starting to happen. Kari, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you for your time and good luck at the Emmys. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, thank you so much for watching and liking the show. Many thanks to Kari Skoglin. The Emmys are on September 17th. Speaking of the Emmys and Emmy season, heads up listeners, next Friday, Labor Day weekend, we're going to take some time off. Uh, Instead of the weekly wrap, we're going to revisit two conversations I had with two actors who are up for Emmys. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta. You might know him as Paperboy from that show. He's up for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy. And also Rachel Brosnahan, who is up for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy for a show that I also love, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You'll hear those two next Friday. And, of course, we're back with our regular weekly wrap after Labor Day. All right, until later this week, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.